Section number 7 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922, by G.K. Chesterton. Section 7. At the Sign of the World's End, The Dictatorship of the Proletariat, by G.K. Chesterton. When I first heard the phrase, the dictatorship of the proletariat, I said it was a senseless contradiction in terms. I said it in my haste, but it was literally and logically true. I said it was like talking of the omnipotence of omnibus conductors. It seemed obvious that, if such a being were omnipotent, he would not necessarily go on conducting an omnibus when he might prefer, for instance, to conduct an orchestra. And it would appear equally obvious that while a man was a proletarian, he could not be a dictator, and that had he become a dictator, he would have ceased to be a proletarian. This was perhaps a merely verbal criticism, but even when I substituted something like the dictatorship of proletarians, the case was by no means clear to me. If we use the expression about a society like our own, the industrial society in which I was born, the idea involved is really unthinkable, because the vast majority of men are proletarians. The dictatorship of the proletariat means the dictatorship of the masses, and the dictatorship of the masses means nothing. In an advanced, scientific, enlightened industrial community like our own, the difficulty about the poor is that there are so many of them. We might have a dictatorship ultimately representing the interests of the populace, and with that idea I shall deal presently. But we cannot have simply a dictatorship by the populace. For the very word dictatorship distinguishes between the governor and the governed. A dictatorship is a despotism. That is, it is a single, directing will. Now herein lies the real answer to the riddle. You could not have in London a literal dictatorship of wage earners, but you might conceivably have a dictatorship of omnibus conductors. All sorts of men, with all sorts of opinion, most men with most opinions, are wage earners. They could not all become a single will, distinct from the community and conquering it. But omnibus conductors, or a school of specially fanatical and idealistic omnibus conductors, might possibly act like a religious sect, with the de omnibus of Mr. Barry Payne as their Bible. At a preconcerted signal, every omnibus conductor might suddenly scale his omnibus, hurl the driver from his seat, seize the wheel or reins, and rapidly drive the vehicle, with all its passengers, into some trap or enclosure, where they could all be made prisoners and held as hostages. A government founded on such a coup d'etat would be a dictatorship. It would be a dictatorship of the omnibus-conducting proletariat, but it would not be a dictatorship of the proletariat. The dethroned driver, prostrate in the road, would be quite as proletarian as his conqueror. He would still be a proletarian, and possibly even a discontented proletarian. And when I had reached this point of reflection, a very simple fact recurred to my mind. The Bolshevist dictatorship did not arise in an industrial society like my own, of which the greater proportion is proletarian. The dictatorship of the proletariat, if it did occur at all, occurred in a country where the proletariat really was a minority and not a majority. An artisan must be almost as rare in Russia as an omnibus conductor in England. At the best it would be a victory of industrial workers over peasant workers, 
very like my visionary victory of omnibus conductors over omnibus drivers. Taken in this sense, such a phrase as the dictatorship of the proletariat really has a rational and legitimate meaning. And I offer a handsome apology to Lenin and Trotsky for having said in my haste that it was meaningless. It does mean something. And it does mean dictatorship. And it does mean dictatorship because it does not mean democracy. It means that some one odd sort of person, like an omnibus conductor, shall alone be allowed to have political power. But this is the very best that it can mean, even as an ideal. And, as we shall see, it means something very much worse as a reality. So far, however, the point is that all these long words and long-winded formularies do become intelligible if we take them to mean simply this. The Russian town seizing a supremacy over the Russian country. But we only understand it if we remember something else. The Russian towns are, in an exceptional degree, exceptions. The Russian country is in a very solid sense the rule. When the exception rules the rule, that may really and reasonably be called a dictatorship. But when we have clearly understood that this is the real contrast and conflict, another consideration will appear equally plain. In the modern world, it is true that all towns are capitalist. But it is not true that all countrysides are capitalist. Curiously enough, the distinction is made clear in the very terms which the Bolshevists are so fond of using. They do not half so often call a capitalist a capitalist as they call him a bourgeois. And a bourgeois means, in philology and history, simply a man of the town. There were indeed times in history, times of benighted superstition and savage feudalism, when even the town was not necessarily capitalist. The socialist of the industrial age would never admit that a carpenter or a cooper could be a bourgeois, but he could undoubtedly be a burgher. Anyhow, what follows is the next step in the dictatorship of the proletariat, which brings it to something narrower even than the proletariat in a country that is not proletarian. The towns being capitalist, the organization of their movement is capitalist in spirit, even when it is communist in theory. The towns did not move as the guilds would have moved in the Middle Ages, or the communes would have moved in the countryside. The Bolshevist who moved first was emphatically a bourgeois and not a burgher. If his mind was unlike that of a medieval burgess, it was naturally even more unlike that of a medieval peasant, or a modern peasant. He was bookish, basing all his authority on one sacred book. He was scientific, talking a language not understanded of the people. He was very frequently Jewish, and not even remotely related to the people. It is sometimes supposed that we urge this latter fact as a point against Jews, but the whole point of it is the point against Bolshevists. Jews considered as detached intellectuals have a right to hold what economic theory they like. But nothing professing to be a movement of horny-handed sons of toil ought to be entirely directed by the one race whose hand has certainly forgotten that sort of cunning, whether or no it was by forgetting Jerusalem. The men who represent manual laborers ought not to be mainly of a people cut off from manual labor. It may or may not be the fault of such Semites that they are so cut off. But I am not urging it as a fault in the Semidio race, but in the socialist movement. We may really say, in a sense, that Jews have a right to be Bolshevists, but Bolshevists have no business to be Jews. The point is here, however, that the controlling force in such a movement not only is in fact a minority, but is not even a proletarian minority, even where only the minority is proletarian. 
it may be and is a bourgeois minority, like any other intelligentsia. And this is not a charge brought by non-socialists against socialists. It is a claim or even a boast made by the socialists themselves. All the Bolshevists in the British socialist movements are openly talking about, quote, a resolute minority, which apparently has some natural or supernatural authority to dictate to the majority, end quote. All those who in any sense sympathize with Lenin and Trotsky, men like Mr. Bernard Shaw, for instance, are saying openly that the masses must be ruled by a minority and that this is the right minority to rule them. In other words, these people have utterly and finally abandoned or abolished the whole test of democracy and have not even attempted to explain what test they would use instead. For the term they use is not a test at all. The case for a resolute minority is the case for any reactionary aristocracy. There can be no conceivable reason why the worst and worst-hated hangers-on of the czar should not affect another coup d'etat and rule by the same right as a resolute minority. It was said that the voice of the people was the voice of God. And at any rate, they are alike in this, that there can only be one of them. There is but one God, and there is but one people. And in that sense, there is but one majority. But there are any number of minorities, and all of them consider themselves resolute and intelligent minorities. My friends and I, for instance, are just as convinced that capital should be better distributed among free citizens as any Bolshevist can be that it should be concentrated under Bolshevist officials. We could probably obtain testimonials, even from Mr. Bernard Shaw, that we are not entirely without intelligence. Suppose we were, on the strength of this, to seize the supreme power break up Harad's stores into a hundred little shops, cut up the Norfolk estates into a hundred little farms, imprison all socialists as traitors to the distributive state, suspend all socialist papers, and, finally, to prevent any possible Fabian reaction, proceed to hang Mr. and Mrs. Sidney Webb, since it would be rather ungrateful, after the testimonial, to hang Mr. Bernard Shaw. It may be that we could not do this. But obviously, it is a hopeless and useless philosophy of ethics and politics that can only advise people to do whatever they can do. It may be that, in the present elaboration of legal restrictions, I cannot hang Mr. Sidney Webb. I cannot even hang him in red tape. But I might find it quite possible to shoot Mr. Sidney Webb. And why in the world should I not shoot him, in the name of my resolute minority? End of section 7